I want to say hi, especially to those of you who are our guests, those of you tuning in at the Bridge Church out in Glendive and on the internet. It's really great to be with all of you today. And you know who Quasimodo is, don't you? Right, the famous bell ringer of Notre Dame. Well, he was getting up in years, and so he put an ad in the paper for an assistant bell ringer. Just one guy applied for the job, but there was a problem with the one guy who applied for the job. He had no arms. He was lacking arms. And uh, being the bell ringer is sort of an arm-intensive job, if you know anything about that. And so Quasimodo meets this job applicant, the only one, and said, well, how in the world are you going to assist me? in ringing the bell. And the guy said, well, this is easy. Could we go up to the bell tower and I will show you? And so Quasimodo said, well, sure, come on up. So they go up the stairs and, and the guy takes a running start towards the bell and gets to it and just starts smashing the bell with his face. Bam, bam. And it's ringing and swinging. And ding, ding, ding. So, I mean, he's, he's doing the job. And Quasimodo's standing there with his hands on his hips going, this is amazing. Will you show that to me again, please? And the guy's like, sure, I'd love to. So he gets a running start again, and the bell's swinging, and he slips and goes right out the window of the bell tower and lands in a heap on the cobblestone several stories below. And a crowd begins to gather around this broken heap of a man, and everyone's like, is he okay? Who is this guy? And so on. A police officer happens by and asks the question that all of us would be asking. Does anyone know who this guy is? And by the time the police officer had made it by and asked the question, Quasimodo had made it down the stairs from the bell tower and heard the police officer's question and was very glad to answer it. He said, well, I don't have any idea what his name is, but his face sure rings a bell. (laughs) Grab your Bible and turn to Matthew 5. I'm not even going to say anything else. Matthew chapter 5. It's the very first book of the New Testament. You can certainly follow along in your study guides if you have that. Uh, The text is in there too. Hold your study guide up. Show me that you brought it. Yes, I brought. Way to go, all of you. Page 10 in there if you're following along, taking notes and so on. John Baker and Rick Warren, they've uh, written some stuff that resourced my preparation of this message and really the whole series And speaking of stuff that John Baker has written, he's written this fantastic book. It's called Life's Healing Choices, and we have a whole bunch of them out in the lobby for you today. And we did that because we think this is going to be another one of God's conduits of transformation through this Life Hurts, God Heals experience. And I'd invite you just to pick one up. There are 10 bucks out there in in the lobby. I think your homework this week actually directs you to some reading from this book. And this is just another way for you to squeeze this experience for all it's worth. Show of hands, please. How many of you have been to Chuck E. Cheese? Show of hands. Whoa, look. It is awesome, isn't it? Chuck E. Cheese. I mean, they've got the best pizza in the business, don't they, right? Actually not. You're actually, when you go to Chuck E. Cheese, you try to take in your own food, don't you? Like, yeah, because it is nasty. But you don't go there for the food, do you? You go there because your kids want you to exchange your hard-earned money for these little worthless tokens that have a picture of an overgrown stuffed rat on them so that they can play the games, win those little tickets, trade those tickets in for dime store junk prizes that do nothing but clutter your life and break before you even make it home from the place, right? And, and then, at least at our house, our children cry when the dime store junk prizes break and and then we have to put the pieces of that back together again. And I know that's cynical, but that's the way it goes at Chuck E. Cheese, right? It's just the way it works. And there's this one game at Chuck E. Cheese that stands out in everyone's memory. You cannot go through life without remembering this game, and it's the game of whack-a-mole. We sort of have a, 
an image of one back here. You, you know the game. Whack-a-mole, right? Yep, Ooh, everyone's played it. You know how it works. The moles pop up out of the various holes, and then you take this hammer smasher club thing, and you exert all of your pent-up frustration on the heads of these little moles that stick up. And just as soon as you slam one down, what happens? Well, like two more pop up, and then you smash those two down, and then three more rear their ugly heads, and then you beat those three down, and on and on and on this thing goes. And the people for the ethical treatment of animals, they abhor this game, don't they? They ask the question, what did the moles ever do to you? Right? It's a good question. And just in case you're wondering, the game of whack-a-mole is unwinnable. You cannot win the game. No matter how good or fast or strong or coordinated you are, you cannot win the game of whack-a-mole. No matter how many moles you crush into oblivion, they just keep coming to the surface, rearing their ugly little rodent heads right at you, like taunting you, right? And after a while, you just give up. You just walk away because this deal cannot be won. And the deal with whack-a-mole is that it's the story of our lives, isn't it? Just when you think you have one problem or one issue, one sin smashed down back under the surface like contained, another one rears its head. And you beat that one down into submission, and then two more problems, issues, sins rear their ugly heads, and you beat those two down, and three more rear their ugly heads. And folks, that is our life. Whack-a-mole. So have fun with that. Thanks so much for being here today. See you next week. Just kidding. But seriously, on a very serious note, the game of whack-a-mole is like our very own persistent sins. I'm not just talking about problems and issues. I'm talking about persistent sins and temptations. They go just like the game of whack-a-mole. You think you've got that one handled, dialed in, contained, and then up it comes again. They just keep popping up again and again and again. And you could go to any bookstore anywhere, and you could check out, or you could read, or you could buy any number of self-help books that will help you try to beat the moles in your life down into submission, better, faster, stronger, so on. But I want you to know today that God's Word does such a better job of teaching and showing us how to end the game with sin. Because God God wants to teach us how to unplug the sin game so that those moles, those persistent sins, those persistent temptations stop rearing their ugly heads. Confession time. Just you, no no show of hands, just you in here. How many of you have stayed up too late when you knew that you needed sleep? This is a real confession question right here. How many of you stayed up too late and then caught up on your sleep in church the next day? (laughs) How many of you have ever eaten or drunk more calories than you knew that your body needed? How many of you have ever made commitments that you knew you had no chance of ever being able to possibly keep? How many of you have ever felt that you needed to exercise but didn't? How many of you have known that you need, you should be kind and unselfish, but instead you were unkind and very selfish? How many times have you tried to take control of your life? a circumstance in your life, or even another person in your life and found out the very, very hard way that that was just not going to be possible. I want you to know if you answered yes to any of those questions, welcome to the human race. You are a human being, and I want you to know that you are a part of the right church community. Journey Church exists to help you grow and change through that stuff, see? And I want to tell you straight up, 
If you're perfect, the Journey Church family is not at all for you, not even close. I say this in the best way I know how to say it, but you should find, if you're perfect, another church community. But then don't join it because it won't be perfect anymore once you show up, right? You see the deal there. Even the Apostle Paul, the one who is the greatest Christ follower since Jesus Christ, struggled with those same kinds of struggles that we just talked about. He wrote this in Romans seven fifteen to 17. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right. But what's he say? But I don't do it. It's like the story of my life right there. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. Now, there's a lot of Bible scholars out there that try to explain Paul's description of his sin away. There's a lot of Bible scholars that try to say that Paul's talking about his before Christ days, before he became a Christ follower, before he was saved, before he was born again, whatever you want to call it, before he had Jesus and the Holy Spirit in his life. But I want you to know that is not at all the case, not even close. Paul wrote that verse with all of the verbs in what they call the present indicative tense. That means what? It means he's doing it right now. Paul's saying, look, I'm sinning right now. I'm struggling with sin right now, even as I write this very verse. Paul was wrestling with sin, persistent sin. Like the game of whack-a-mole, what sin keeps popping up in your life? Stress, fear, overwork, wrong attractions to another person or to another thing, addictions, regrets, diet, worry, bad habits, anger, dishonesty, the need to control, finances, relationships, painful memories, perfectionism, resentment, compulsive thoughts. If you said yes to any of those things, this study, this experience, Life Hurts, God Heals, is tailor-made for you. You're in just the right place. And we get to the cause of those problems We have to peel back right in here because it's our nature that is the cause of those problems. And I'm not talking about like rocks and sticks and trees and mountains kind of nature. I'm talking about sin nature, hard wiring. Our tendency to do the wrong thing comes from that sin nature, see. Our tendency to do wrong, our sin nature, causes us to desire to be God. All of us want to be God. We want to be in control. We want to be the ones who decide what's right and what's wrong, what we do and what we don't do. No one likes anybody telling them what they should or shouldn't do. We want to be God. And you go all the way back to the very first human beings, Adam and Eve, and God drops them in this fantastic place, and he says, everything here is for you except one thing, one tree, one fruit. Leave it alone. And what they do? They run right over, like a beeline almost, right to it. And there's Satan dangling the, I'm not sure it was an apple, it might have been a mango, dangling the mango in front of them. And here's what Satan says, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like who? God, knowing both good and evil. Adam and Eve wanted to be God, we want to be God today. And not only do we want to be God, we try to play God. We try to play God by putting ourselves, or at least attempting to put ourselves, at the center of our very own little universe. And we do that by a variety of ways, by trying to control our image, for example. 
We all play games. We all wear masks. We all pretend. We all fake it to control and manipulate what everyone else sees of us and therefore thinks of us. We all try to control other people, don't we? Parents try to control their kids, and kids try to control their parents, and wives try to control their husbands, and husbands try to control their wives, and colleagues try to gain the upper hand of control in the marketplace. People all playing tug-of-war, trying to control people, people manipulating people for the sake of gaining control, trying to play God. We also try to control our own problems, don't we? No one ever wants to admit that they ever have a problem, a difficulty, a challenge. We think we can just work our stuff out on our own, in our own power. But like one TV repairman said when he was asked the question, what's the most damaged TV you've ever seen in your whole life? He said, well, it was when these people tried to fix their television on their own. They took it all apart and tried to repair it. It was almost irreparable after they got done with it. The same way goes with our lives. The more we try to fix our own problems, the worse they get, see. We also try to control our own pain. We avoid pain and deny it. We escape it. We reduce it. We postpone it. All because we'll try almost anything to keep our pain just under control, just out of sight, out of mind somewhat. The cause, then, of our problems is our nature that influences our propensity to try to play God. We try to play God when he tells us to do something, when he challenges us to do something, when he invites us to do something, and we don't do it. We say, I know God says this behavior will cause me damage or this attitude will cause me damage, but doggone it, I'm going to do it anyway. I know God says that this is not healthy for me, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because, see, I know what makes me happy more and better than God does. I know God says that this sex outside of marriage deal will cause me damage and my partner damage, but I'm going to do what I want to do the way I want to do it when I want to do it. I know God says that giving generously to his work through my church is the right thing to do, but I don't want anybody telling me how to spend my hard-earned money. I'm doing it my way. And I know God says, I know God says, I know God says, but, 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 we try to play God. We're saying that we actually know what will make us happy more and better than God does. And here's the deal. We are the common denominator in every single one of our problems, our issues, and our sins. We are the common denominator. We're it. And we're it because, see, we are our very own worst enemy. We cause ourselves the most problems. People don't do all of this stuff to us. We cause ourselves the most problems. That means then that right here is who and what we have to deal with first, right out of the chutes. And so we ask, what in the world is the cure to all of that? The cure is the course that we're going to set ourselves on over the next eight weeks. And we're going to do it as we gather together like this, as we gather in small groups in living rooms all over the place, as we do homework and read and listen and pray all throughout the week. And we're going to do that by talking about the eight B attitudes of Jesus. They're the first eight statements in the most famous sermon ever given called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus gets right to it in Matthew chapter 5. He says, look, you will be blessed if you do this. You will be blessed if you do this. You will be blessed if you do this. Eight different statements. And lots of us, we go, that sounds nice, but I have no idea what it means to be blessed. You wouldn't know a blessing if it smacked you in the face. Blessing, then, 
is literally this Greek word called makarismos. And makarismos is the poetic form of the verb makar, which in Greek means simply to be happy. To be happy. To be blessed means to be happy. To be blessed actually means to be the happiest that you could possibly be in your whole life. It's a poetic, flowery form of being happy beyond compare. And so Jesus, in the most famous sermon ever given, says, here's eight ways to be happy. It's a felt-need sermon, isn't it? And Jesus says, look, the way that you think you're going to be happy is not at all the way that the world tells you you're going to be happy, is it? It's a different path, a different trajectory, a different course. And the first beatitude is the first healing choice toward all of us getting rid of our hurts, habits, and hang-ups that tend to mess up our lives. It comes from Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, the very first beatitude. It's on the screens and in your Bible, bottom of page 10 in your study guide. This is from the Good News translation. Happy are those who know that they are spiritually poor. Happy are those who know that they are spiritually poor. Circle those words in your study guide, spiritually poor. Those are crux words. Jesus is not talking about being financially poor. He's not saying there's blessing in being financially poor. He's talking about spiritual poverty, soul poverty. Jesus is saying you will be happiest when you recognize your sinfulness, your helplessness, and your hopelessness. One version of the text I looked at this week said it this way. Blessed are those who recognize that they are spiritually helpless. That's what Jesus has in view here. And this is the very first statement in the recovery acrostic that we're building through this Life Hurts, God Heals experience. It's the same acrostic that our Celebrate Recovery Ministry works with week in and week out, helping people with their hurts, habits, and hang-ups on an ongoing, every-week basis. And it's this. we got to realize that I'm not God. Very simply, we got to realize that I'm not God, that you're not God. And then actually move to a place of saying, I admit that I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and that my life is unmanageable. That is the true confession of a person who is spiritually poor. When you authentically and entirely arrive at the place where you can say that and mean it from the top of your head to the tips of your toes, you're saying, look, God, I recognize I'm spiritually bust here. And Jesus says, when you get to that place, if you can cultivate that attitude in you, if you can admit that you're powerless, that you need help, that you can't control and manage every detail in your life, but that you need God's help, Jesus says, that's when you're going to be happy. That's when you're going to be blessed. That's when you're going to, as a matter of fact, be the happiest that you could possibly be because spiritual poverty is the first stop on the journey to all of us being happy. So how do you do that? How do you become spiritually poor? How do you live in that attitude and posture of spiritual impoverishment? Two things. The first thing we've got to do on the road to spiritual poverty is watch this. Face the truth about me and admit that I need help i got to face the truth about me. You've got to face the truth about you. This week's title of this message, of the stuff you'll read, the stuff in your study guide, is Admitting Need. It's the reality choice. We have to face the truth about us. You have to face the truth about you. I've got to face it about me. And the truth about the truth is that we don't really like the truth, do we? I heard it in a movie once. You can't handle the truth, right? We don't like the truth about us. 
We love the truth about everyone else. We gobble that up. Give me more of the truth about them, would you please? But we hate the truth about me. And that's why we avoid it. That's why we fake it. It's painful for us to look in the mirror and face the truth about me. It's much safer to deny and ignore the truth because while Jesus says that the truth will set me free, first, the truth causes me to really hate life when I realize everything that's got to change about me. The truth, we've got to face it. It's the first stop on the road to recovery and wholeness and healing. Admit that you need help. And when you get to that place, God gives, God promises his immeasurable grace to you. Some of you are asking the question, I've heard that word, grace, but what is it? Grace is the power that comes from God that we all require to change. The power that comes from God that we all require to actually change. Over the course of the next eight weeks, you're going to see some significant changes begin to unfold in your life if you simply will do what God is asking you to do through this experience. But that transformation will not happen by your sheer willpower. It won't work. Just think, for example, about how many diets you've started in your life, how many exercise programs you've started in your life. How's that going for you? The willpower thing does not work because we all wear down, we all get tired, and true change requires the grace of God, the power of God. And His grace is that power that we all need in order to transform and change. The first thing we got to do is we got to admit that we need help. And the second thing we got to do on the road to spiritual poverty is to then humbly ask God for His help. Humbly ask God for His help. First, I admit that I need help. Then I humbly ask God for his. It's a move from confession to petition, see. And we ask God for his help because he's our helper. I promise you, no matter what you think of your marriage today, no matter how dead and far gone you think it is, God can resurrect your marriage. Your career you think is on the rocks, dead God can resurrect your dead career. God can resurrect a dead dream that you might have been carrying for decades that you've all but given up on. God can resurrect it. God can restore the love and romance to your marriage. God does indeed do miracles. God can bring good out of very, very bad. But it starts with you admitting that you need help and then asking God for his. See, have you done that? Have you done that? Have you come to the point in your life when you've said every single thing about my life, the good, the bad, the ugly, the stinking, the rotten, the happy, the sad, the ups and the downs, every single thing about my life, I put it all in your hands, God, all of it, nothing held back. And will you please not wait until you reach rock bottom to get to that place? We're like this. We're stubborn and we're defensive and we're bent often on running from God. And so for lots and lots and lots of us, me included, the only way we ever look up at him is when we're laid out flat on our back. But God says, look, you don't have to get to that place. You can do this the easy way or you can do it the hard way. But most of us rarely change anything until our fear of the change we need to make is exceeded by the pain of not changing, right? Don't wait until life is crashing around you from 10 different directions to look up at God and say, I need help. Will you help me? Don't get to that place. Just come to God. Ask him for his help. And along the way, throughout this whole experience, over the course of the next eight weeks, 
we're going to hear some stories, fantastic stories from some people who have and who are living out these healing choices literally right before our eyes. Today, we have the high privilege of hearing from our friend Melissa, and she's going to share her story with us of admitting need and asking God for his help. And so would you please help me welcome Melissa today? Third time's a charm, huh? Um, third time's a charm, huh? So um, I got five minutes to tell you 43 years, so I got real condensed. They say insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. That was my last 43 years. About 80 days ago, I just completely surrendered. Um, I grew up with an alcoholic mother who believed that the only way she could get love was if she was beaten. And um, so she kind of went through men like Kleenex. By the time I was 13, I'd had eight stepfathers. Um, Sorry for the ums. My um, childhood, I endured a lot of abuse, physical, mental, and sexual. And there was a lot of pain going through there and um, a lot of drugs. By the time I was in seventh grade, I was a full drug addict. I mean, I got up in the morning and smoked a joint and went to school and stayed stoned pretty much throughout my days up until about junior high where I switched to cocaine. (laughs) So that one was even easier, eh? Um, you know, um, my life was just a roller coaster, and that's how I raised, was raised of in this darkness, and that's what my choices were. I um, told my mom uh, when I was about 11 or 12 that her husband was molesting me, and she didn't believe me, so I left. I just got up off the couch and walked out. I, went, I came back about six months later and brought her a gift for her birthday, and uh, she asked me if I'd go live with my father, whom I'd never met except for about an hour when I was eight years old. That was a good time in my life. I actually have a memory because I don't have a memory prior to eight years old. My dad is, um, he's my rock, and he has um, shown me like what family was and the closeness there. So I grew there for um, the high school years, and then I joined the Army. And I pretty much stayed normal, and, you know, in the Army it wasn't worth risking anything as far as drugs went, and I... Went through those days, and when I got out, I just um, went with a friend of mine to find her niece who had got with a pimp and went down to an area called the Combat Zone, and we went to find her, and uh, my friend's brains were blown all over me. And a bag lady looked at me and said, Don't worry, um, God won't put upon you that which you cannot bear without also giving you a way out. And I just looked at her like she was crazy. But that's the first scripture I ever remember. And um, I held on to that for a long time because after that I went through a really dark period. Like you didn't think I could go dark. It just spiraled into nothingness. Um, About 80, 80 days ago, I completely surrendered and turned my will and my life over to care of God. Um... And, you know, I joined a 12-step program, which basically told me that, and that's what I did. I, um, I wanted to change my life so bad that I was just completely into researching all of it. And I got in the Bible, and I'd come to Journey Church, and I'd use that card in my seat, and I, um, I wrote on there that I was looking for more. And um, 
<laughs> Good thing I can write, huh? Because John called me, John Oakland, and he talked to me and said, I think you should meet my wife. And um, for those of you who know Michelle, she is a severe motivator. <laughs> she just kind of signs you up and tells you about it later. <laughs> like, you will be going to boot camp. I've signed you up. Oh, that was okay, wasn't it? I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> You know, getting in boot camp is probably one of the best things that has come my way because I've really found out how to communicate and to figure out how to do this because it was really, really hard for me to turn it over. After 42 years of running my life into the ground, to just step back and say, deal with it and handle it is the hardest thing to do for me. And I have to put myself in check every day. In boot camp, they have these things called preconditions that were really overwhelming me, you know. And the more I looked at them, the more freaked out I got. And these are like God's sins. And I'm like, please, I am so engrossed in God's sins, it's not even funny. And underneath, there's um, verses. And I started looking them up and writing them down. And it was just a miracle for me because they just went away. The minute I wrote it out, I haven't worried since that day. Um, my fears outside of the stage really have gone away. <laughs> um, you know, but there's so much that I didn't know was sin. And um, I just was like, wow, I'm never going to find my way out of this. But it's just, it's amazing how God has revealed things to me. And I heard the greatest thing in boot camp from one of our leaders was she said, you know, Journey Church isn't a church that says, here, come in and get saved and go out and bring us people. She said, Journey Church is a church that says, come in and get saved and now let's work on you. And then people will want what you have. And by the grace of God, you'll be able to show them. And that's how it was for me with Michelle. And I hope this helps someone. So that's all I got. Thanks. <laughs> Time's up. <laughs> Here you go, Melissa. You, you, you dropped that. Yeah. And Melissa's story of transformation is fantastic, but it isn't reserved just for her. You could have a very similar experience to her over the course of the next eight weeks. And I promise you, this is going to be a life-changing eight weeks. But get this. Jesus' beatitudes have nothing to offer us unless our faith in Jesus Christ is vibrant and alive. In Romans 5, 6, the Bible says this, when we were unable to help ourselves, at the moment of our need, Christ died for us. And just in case you're wondering, at the point when you're unable to help yourself, it's right now. And at the moment of your need, that's also right now. And at both of those places, at both of those times, at right now, Christ died for us. And our hurts and our habits and our hang-ups all being healed and us being made new, it starts with the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the grave because it's through those means that Christ gives us the grace, the courage, the power to change. Like Melissa is in the process of being transformed and changed, a journey that started for her literally 80 days ago. 80 days ago. But it starts with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you might be sitting here thinking right now, well, my problem's not that bad. My problem's not like Melissa bad, right? But think on this. How bad does it have to get for you before you ask for help? 
How bad does it have to get for you before you ask for help? Honestly, like now is the time for change. You don't have to hit rock bottom flat on your back. You could decide that transformation is what you need and what you want right now. Why don't you close up your study guide if you would and set that thing aside. And I just invite you to move into a posture of listening and prayer. Just get quiet with the Lord if you would. You can do that now. And if you could keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for the next few moments, I want to just press in with you a bit, ask you some questions. What's unhealthy or out of balance in your life? What needs changing about you today? Would you be willing to take that very first step today of admitting your need? saying, I can't do this. And then move quickly from that place to asking God for his help. And of all the eight choices that we're going to be talking about in these coming weeks, this might be the hardest one for you because it's going to mean that you're going to have to be real honest, that you're going to have to face stuff that you might have been afraid to face for a long, long, long time. Would you take that first step today? And if you're wanting to do that, I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to invite you to pray with me. God, thank you so much for loving us so incredibly. And God, we know that none of us are perfect. We all have areas of our lives that are unhealthy and out of balance and wrong and sinful. Some of the stuff, God, that we carry is so painful that we, can even, we can't even think about them. And Lord, I pray for people today who are struggling with guilt and shame and secrets and depression. God, I pray for those who have even thought about just taking their life, just ending their life, because they saw that as the only doorway out of the pain of this life. Father, I pray for people who are living in a marriage that is stuck, that is cold, that is dying. God, I pray for couples who... Married couples who are living separate even right now. God, for those who are struggling with a habit, a secret sin, a hurt, a fear of being out of control, God, would you please give all of us, no matter what place we're at, the courage to take that first step toward you, the first step toward health and help and healing. And if you're so inclined to take that first step today, I just invite you to silently pray along with me right where you're sitting. Dear God, I want to take that first step of getting healthy today. I know I'm not God, but I've often pretended like I was. I've tried to be God. I've tried to control stuff. And God, I'm so sorry. I've done things that you told me God would cause me damage. I've not done the things that you told me would bring me health. And God, starting today, I'm not running from you anymore. Today, I stoop low before you and I become spiritually poor. I admit I need your help. I'm tired of hiding all my stuff, my hurts, my habits, and my hang-ups, and my sin. I'm tired of hiding it. I'm helpless, God. And I ask you to take the pieces of my unmanageable life and begin the process of putting me together into the person who you intend and made for me to be. Help me, please. I'm not just asking God for your forgiveness. I want to be healed, whole, healthy. I want to get all of this behind me so that the rest of my life can be all that you intend 
for it to be. I pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. And everyone said, amen.